Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year, and this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of our discussion about the current policy change. Bill, um... Are you ready to go another hour or four? I'm I'm excited. I, I love to see kind of where this one goes. I think this one will be kind of more um, up my alley as we kind of set some of the emotional part of this aside and kind of hit this uh, hit this head on intellectually. Sounds great. We're also joined tonight by a frequent listener to the podcast um, from Las Vegas. Clay, are you there? Yep, I'm here, guys. Okay, just go ahead and add your thoughts as we work through this tonight. Um, so, Bill, let's start with the announcement. Um, when the announcement happened last Thursday, you you shared with us in, in part one that it was very emotional and very like a like a punch to the gut. I think were the words you used. The when did you start to process it intellectually, though, or have you have you been able to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty quick. As soon as it came out, like you like you said, it was a gut punch, but. Right away, I'm looking for some reasonable way to explain it. Um, I'd love to know kind of how you two felt because this this totally caught me off guard. I I would have if somebody was said, "Hey, something like this is going to happen." I'd have bet money that that's impossible. If this there's no way this was going to come down. There was just too much, too many steps forward, too much risk of of you know negative publicity for them to even do this. But I'd love to know what you guys thought when uh, when this happened. Well, I was obviously surprised and probably like most people um there'd been so many good quotes recently in the last uh, couple of years that made me think that uh, we were uh you know more expansive you know kind of a bigger tent type of mormonism we were spreading the stakes out to allow more um allow people to experience the church in different ways so I was shocked, quite frankly, uh, shocked. It seemed like it was a, a step backward, and it didn't seem like it. It uh, it seemed like it violated scripture. It just it was. Uh, it was. I was shocked. Um, like you said, a, a punch to the gut. Clay, did you, are you are you still with us, or did you hang up? <laughs> no, I'm here, guys. Okay. I. Uh, it sounds like a lot of us in um, in the kind of progressive Mormon. Mormon circles kind of felt the same thing. We felt, uh, hurt. We felt, um, shocked, um, angry. I, you kind of, I had a whole range of emotions over, over the last week. And, you know, growing up as a Mormon over the last four decades, I've kind of watched our church, you know, invest so much time and energy and, and money, my church, uh, into, you know, building these good relations, um, and quite frankly, the Mormon brand throughout the world, you know, in this policy, you know, we only have a week to work through it. This policy is going to, in my, my thought, it was, it was going to dismantle all that goodwill that we kind of worked towards and maybe not, not immediately, but, uh, and not in every place of the world, but, but soon it will. And I don't think, and we've kind of watched this play out and hoping things will, 
get better, but I, I can't imagine how even softening this policy will um, will fix it. It won't. It, uh, you know, it, making small little adjustments here or there just won't. And I've kind of built that that um, <clears throat> that emotion is still kind of raw with me this week and in being hurt, realizing where the church is going to be in 10 years or five years and knowing that I'm, I still want to be part of this church. It's it's going to it kind of hurts me to see where it's going. Well, there was, as everyone knows, there was a, a lot of uproar, a lot of um, a lot of emotion, a lot of uh, emotion expressed online. Um, well, let's. Let's let's talk about kind of numbers. I would say, you know, I've I've had lunch with different people every day this week. I had dinner. I just got out of dinner a few hours ago with a couple that wanted to talk about it. I had another couple that wanted to meet me at 4 p.m. and talk about it. And one of those members of that couple was leaving the church over it. I mean, it maybe it's the circles we run in, but um, it, it, it you know it hurts to see this many people, dozens of people that are coming together just in a small little area of Las Vegas that want to talk it through and they don't mm-hmm. have anyone to really talk it through and they're waiting on their leaders to make an adjustment. Yeah. And I, and I think it's crucial to note, like when other things have come up within Mormonism, certainly people like me and, you know, uh, other people on the internet that write blogs from rational faith or John Dillon from Mormon stories and, and the people that follow those things and, and feel the same way, certainly you know, are raising some criticisms. This was different. This was, this was middle of the road. Mormon seemed like he got gut punched too. And rather than defend the church, like that group normally would, there were a lot of people in that kind of middle of the road, uh, Latter-day Saint who was, who was either a critical or B just, just saying flat out that they didn't understand it and that they were disagreeing with it. And uh, I was quite amazed and just then start to see the news media pick it up. I think it went kind of crazy there for a while. I'd add that the variable, I think, that hurt everyone so much was the um, inclusion of the children um, and how we uh, and how it affected how kids would interact with the church. I think that's the reason why the middle of the road Mormon got got uh, emotionally tied into this was that you just don't mess with kids and it felt like the church and like you pointed out so many ways that violate our teachings and our doctrine and our theology the church was just like look man these kids have gay parents they just need to get lost and and it kind of felt like that and i think a lot of people were um trying to scratch for reasons why that would even even come out well it was i believe the next day that elder christopherson offered a clarification uh he was interviewed by michael otterson and the interview was uh, posted online. Um, did you think that that added or helped Bill and, and Clay? Well, I guess I'll pipe in first. I I don't think it helped. I don't think Elder Christoph. He looked nervous. He he looked like he had a lot of makeup on. Um, he looked like he was not comfortable being up there. Um, the clarification that he gave, I don't think, was very very logical. It didn't seem to overwhelm me as in terms of the negative that I saw that this policy was going to do and him telling me the positive that was going to happen. I just didn't see his positive outweighing the negative that I, that I foresaw occurring because of this policy. And I also think it should be noted that because we're going to get tie into this later, that elder Christofferson was defending the handbook, the way it is written the way that originally original policy came out. It there's no mention of this future clarification that we're going to talk about. He is absolutely trying to contextualize 
and defend the the handbook as it is, and I just don't think it went over really well. Yeah, and I think the size and scope of the policy being worldwide and as and as um, as huge as it was, and and even though it was a day later, they could still see that this was uh, an atom bomb that they dropped. It really called for somebody bigger than a twelve to uh, do that uh, conference or that uh, uh, interview. It also ties into this idea that we've, we kind of hit on this as we were preparing for the interview in the Holy Ghost. Christofferson makes, one of the arguments he makes is that this policy is out to protect the children. And the way it protects them is it doesn't cause any kind of confusion that, that, that if, if a child has, you know, any gay parents, some, you know, if, if mom and dad got divorced and dad's gay and now he lives with, you know, another man and they're married, all of a sudden, this child can't participate in any of the ordinances. Child blessings, baptism, getting priest, none of it. And Christofferson uses the reasoning that it's out to protect them. And when they get older, they can make this decision later on in life to get baptized. But but that by itself contradicts our teachings, right? I mean, we have this emphasis on the Holy Ghost and how important it is to our youth. And we we are constantly teaching our youth that the Holy Ghost is is crucial in uh, in their growing up and they're making good decisions and it just seemed to really be off base from our theology. Yeah, if I could share a, a quick story when I was telling my teenagers about it, my my son and daughter, my wife and I sat them down a couple of days after the policy and was released and talked to them about it and I was focused on I was trying not to have an edge or a bias of my own. Uh, my own biases when I was explaining the policy and what it meant. And I was explaining that essentially we're taking away the ticket to heaven for, for these children of gay parents. And I was kind of focused on the, the baptism and that the denial of baptism is the gateway to heaven. We, we taught, we teach in our church about the importance of baptism and we build temples to baptize the dead. We send missionaries out to baptize those that are, that are searching truth, searching for the truth. And, and the, this focus was denying the baptism. And, and like you said, Bill, <clears throat> about the Holy Ghost, my 14 year old son said, well, what about the gift that we're denying him of the Holy Ghost? And I asked him to tell me more. And he said, well, you guys, mom and dad, you had, you've always told us how important it is to have the Holy Ghost in our teenage years and to keep that away from, from children that need the Holy Ghost when they're 13, 14, 15, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, in his mind, it made no sense to withhold a gift that should be given to teenagers that want it. And I, I hadn't thought of it that way. And that's a, that's a good point, Bill. Yeah. In fact, while you guys, while you were talking there, Clay, I pulled up the, uh, the For Strength of Youth, uh, book that we give to all of our kids in the church. There are nine references to the Holy Spirit. Let me read a few of these. Uh, we promise that as you keep the covenants you have made in these standards, you will be blessed with the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Your faith and testimony will grow and you will, you will, uh, enjoy increasing happiness. Uh, another one says that, um, while here on earth, you are being proven to see if you will use your agency to show your love for God by keeping his commandments. The Holy Ghost can guide you in using your agency righteously. Uh, another one says that uh, this spiritual learning will help you find answers to the challenges of life and will invite the companionship of the Holy Ghost. I mean, every reference is how important the Holy Ghost is. Here's one. If you are not sure whether something is appropriate to watch or listen to, talk to your parents and other adult leaders. The Holy Ghost will give you strength to make correct choices. If we're going to downplay the Holy Ghost, then, then we're, le it just seems like it's a, it's a lose-lose. Like on one hand, we want to say the Holy Ghost is important 
to making good choices, to staying on the right path. And then on the other hand, we're telling the parent, the kids of these, of these gay parents that, yeah, you know, you really don't need it. You can get it later. Not a big deal. You know, when you're 18, if you're still interested, we'll catch up with you then. And that really negates this idea that by then it may already be too late. These kids without the Holy Ghost may already be heading down the wrong path and never be open to the church. And it, it, and I would think if you were to ask me, if we're gonna if we're gonna paint the picture that homosexuality is sin, what greater tool could we give the child of these sinners than the gift of the Holy Ghost to help them make right decisions in the midst of of the bad decisions their parents are making? And and it just doesn't make sense to me. So I wanted to point out that it's um, November thirteenth, Friday, and it's been a week. So we went a week without any any clarification since Elder Christofferson. But this morning, the First Presidency issued a letter um, that was signed by the, the First Presidency, and it offered some clarification and some modification to what was what originally came out on Thursday. Uh, and I wanted to I wanted to maybe offer the perspective that possibly it's it's hopeful that because they've they've come out with a letter and and um, they've offered this modification where the things that people assumed on Thursday were not what people assumed. Bill, when you saw the letter today, what was your what was your first response? So I I saw it, I printed it off, I read through it, and it it came off to me what they were basically were saying was, look, here's the handbook, something in there's written, but in reality this only applies to children who live primarily and and are in the custody of a homosexual couple. And that seems a really stark difference from what's in the handbook. The other thing they did too was say, look, you know, the handbook isn't really hard and fast. Um, the things that are in the handbook, leaders are, you know, free to use the spirit of, of discernment and, and to make adjustments as needed. And that's also not the way I was taught. I mean, I served as a bishop for almost five years. I was taught by my stake presidency that they had been taught by area authorities that handbook one is pretty set in stone. That's, you pretty much follow that one to a T. That is the, the, the kind of the stringent guidelines of the church. And then handbook two is the one that you get some flexibility with as you deal with certain situations that are outside the norm, as you deal with people from different cultures. Uh, it just, it just felt like a sleight of hand to kind of draw our attention away from the handbook, but it, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. I'm sorry. Is it possible the clarification that the first presidency issued today, though, could be positive? Could it open the door for maybe a, a more benign, um, a more benign reading of the policy? Like, for example, if the parents of Let's say that a, a child has gay parents. Do you think that it, this policy could evolve if the gay parents at some point were able to give their consent, even though they couldn't be members of the church, if they were to give their consent like any other um, child younger than 18, um, maybe eventually they could get baptized. Do you think that there's a chance it could evolve into that? Well, sure, but there's already a policy on the books. I mean, we already have a policy. I remember this as a bishop. If you have an underage person who wants to join the church, 
they have to have, it used to be, you go back a decade or more, it used to be you just had to have one parent sign off. But the policy today is you have to have both parents, if both are living, you have to have both parents sign off that baptism is okay. There was already a policy in place. So essentially the only time we're going to make a difference here is if both gay parents are comfortable with their child joining the church and desire it to happen and the church is still going to say no. That just doesn't feel right. Um, I don't know why, you know, if, if we're going to change what was in the handbook to this new clarification, it seems kind of pointless since there's already a policy that pretty much addresses this kind of issue on the books. So why do you think the church did this? <laughs> I'll tell you why. And this is just me throwing out my, my thoughts. They, they came up with this handbook policy that was re, that was leaked. Um, this policy, you don't just get, you don't get things in the handbook as a rough draft. This was, this was thought over. It was proceeded with. I mean, somebody made the active decision to, to put this in the handbook and, and you gotta believe that most, if not all 15 of the top men, uh, were aware of this as it went in. I can't believe there's only one guy that snuck it in. And so to have it in the handbook, it's, it's hard and fast. It's in there. It's an absolute. And now this, this clarification, Almost comes off like, yeah, there's a lot of uproar. People are balking. People are resi- you know, resigning from the church. This is bad PR. Newspapers are picking this up. We got to do something, guys. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, we're coming out with this clarification, which really, Chris, you used the right word. It's really a modification. It's really saying, look, the handbook, we messed up in how we said it. We went too far. And, and this is really now how, where we'd like us to kind of interpret it because because we want everybody to stop being upset and and we went too far with it. That's me. That's what I think. Did they have any other choice because of the first release from a week ago? Did they have any other choice? Is there was there anything else they could do besides completely removing the policy? Well, they could apologize, but that's kind of against our doctrine now. You know, I see the original policy, as, you know, the policy that was released a week ago or that was leaked a week, a week ago as being a very well-calculated plan to kill the idea that the church, which most people are seeing, was warming up to accepting same-sex marriage. And I think that's kind of what we all were witnessing over the last few years is, okay, at some point we're going to fully accept LGBT members as our true brothers and sisters. And I think the policy was was uh, written to kill that idea because – of the fear of them actually sitting in the pews with us, right? Forming families, committing each other to committing, uh, you know, uh, as, as couples and then raising kids in our church. I think that fear was so prevalent among our leaders that they didn't have any other choice but to, to do this. Well, they did have a choice in their minds. They didn't. Yeah. And you, you look at that. I mean, they're just like the day before this policy was released, there was some media. Uh, article that came out that said that like 30% of Mormons are now okay with same-sex marriage. I mean, I think the brethren are looking around, they're saying this is, you know, it's only going to be one more decade and we're going to be over 50% of the church that wants this to happen. How can we slow this down? And, and like you point out, Clay, if there's a happy gay couple in the pew in front of you and their kids are happy, you're going to be drawn to say, man, I just don't see the big deal. And I think the brethren here made an effort to say, we need to keep this, we need to keep happy gay people and their children as far away from other members of the church as possible so that we can at worst slow this down and at best prevent this from becoming 
socially acceptable. That that thirty percent number, Bill. What what year back in the sixties do you think members of the church were at thirty percent believing blacks should receive the priesthood? Nineteen sixty five. Right. It's it was the same thing, and so we're just one generation away. Whether we like it or not, whether we implement these kind of policies or not, we're one generation away from the majority of Latter-day Saints, the millennials becoming adults and and, uh, their kids behind them who are now uh, teenagers from this being perfectly acceptable and seen as seen as human beings just like you and me who who want to live their lives and be happy and, and find joy within them. Do you guys think there could be any other reasons other than fear? Do you guys leave the door open for inspiration uh, or any other reason that they would have come up with this policy other than fear? Uh, sure, you can go back to you know the Old Testament and a few scriptures after that that point at homosexuality being uh, bad and evil and sin. But I think, guys, I, I just think if once we start recognizing how messy religion is and we start looking at the reality that you know when when a volcano erupts. The Indians think that God is mad and so they throw the virgins into the volcano. I just think that we often use God as an explanation for why things that we can't explain happen. And I think homosexuality from the beginning of time, nobody really could explain it. And I think they were an easy targeted group to kind of pick on. And and so, yeah, we could throw it out. We could say it's doctrine. It's God revealed. Um, I'm just not, I'm just not so sure that that's not the track I want to go down. I, Here's the easiest way for me to explain. I don't want to ramble, but here's the easiest way for me to explain it. If if the stake president came to you or me or Clay, Chris, would, and he said, okay, three of you guys, I want you three to live the rest of your lives celibate, not being uh, intimate with your spouses, uh, not being intimate with anybody of the opposite gender. Um, would you guys? Would you guys just you know be okay with that and hang around? Oh, hell no. Uh, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Right. Right. So right. you guys would be out. And yet we ask our gay brothers and sisters to do just that. Their only option is to be celibate. We no longer recommend they marry somebody of the same gender. We no longer say that this is fixable. We admit this is something that, that is not a choice. And yet we tell them to live the rest of their lives celibate. And I think it's the most asinine thing we could ask anybody to do. Because if we ask that of our heterosexual members, our church would go from an active membership of 6.4 million down to about uh, 300,000. It just, it really comes down, boils down to same-sex marriage, not the sin of homosexuality, right? I think it was more of the fear of same-sex marriage, not homosexual acts. I mean, at least that's what I'm gathering from. And I think you're right. I think you're right, Clay. I think, I think the brethren here by this policy have essentially said that a homosexual couple who loves each other and who is married legally is now seen as a greater atrocity than the gay man who has promiscuous sex with everyone. Exactly. So, I, Chris, I, I think back to your original question, I don't think we have any other choice but to consider it possibly that it was done out of fear because if it was inspiration, then why wasn't released 10 years ago when Canada made same-sex marriage legal or Europe two decades ago when they made same-sex marriage legal? Um, why did it just happen to be in America that it became inspired to make this policy? I, I, I really think we just have to call it what it is. And I think more importantly, it's so important to be honest right now. And that's what we're asking from our leaders because we got to consider what's at stake if we're not honest with its members. What's at stake? 
where is the church going to be in 10 or 20 years if we hold this as doctrine? If this gets cemented as doctrine, right now it's a policy, but if they don't backtrack and it gets cemented as doctrine, where do you guys see the church in 10 years? Are we going to be relevant? Yeah, it seems like it's going to be really, really hard ground to hold. Right, right. And and I should say, too, I mean, one of the things Elder Christofferson you know, talked about is this idea of protecting the children from confusion. And, and I look back at my time as a bishop and this idea of not giving, you know, kids of gay parents baby blessings. Um, every other week we were giving baby blessings to part member families that were inactive. You know, we'd have, uh, we'd have Daniel and his wife, uh, Jolene. Jolene wouldn't be a member. Daniel would be, but he only came to church once a year. And, and we're baby, you know, we're doing those baby blessings every other week to these kids. And, and that's a house of confusion, right? Church is important. Church is not important. I, you know, you need to keep the word of wisdom, but I'm breaking the word of wisdom. There's lots of confusing things going on in people's households. And yet we pick this issue to single it out and say that this kind of confusion is exponentially worse. So bad that we can't bless, that we can't give a blessing and a name to a child and that we can't allow an eight-year-old to enter the waters of baptism and that we can't allow a young man to receive priesthood and that missionary calls are now on hold and that now this person has to disavow their, their, their family's behavior, which, which let's be honest, when you disavow someone's behavior, that's offensive. And in, in some ways you're disavowing that person. Um, I just think we're asking way too much. Well, something else that happened today was there was a uh, article released on Mormon Newsroom. Um, did you get a chance to review that, guys, on the new podcast? I did. I don't know if you did, Clay. No, I'll pull it up right now while you guys are discussing it. Yeah, you should. You should. The The Mormon Newsroom does this this post that tries to defend it. I'd love to hear the line. We probably ought to pull it up here really quick. Um, but there's a line in there where it's obvious they're trying to blame the members for for being in an uproar. Yeah, it seems to say that we all misunderstood the new policy because of the media. Um, and, right, the and media that, was inaccurate in their portrayal of this policy. Yeah, and that, and that doesn't seem like a very accurate statement because we were all looking, we were all reading the actual policy from the from Handbook One. Um, it seemed pretty clear what the what the policy was. Right, and Handbook One leaves no room for an exception to the rule. Handbook One leaves no room to say it only pertains to the these children of a gay couple, not those children of a gay couple. It really was a lot of lines in the sand that the, that the Mormon newsroom and the, the first presidency letter seemed to pretend never existed. Do you think we would have added a modification today had there not been the uproar? Do you think we would have let... No, the- heck no, no way, no way. The, the, the uproar is what caused the modification. The uproar is what caused Elder Christofferson to go in front of a camera, and the uproar... Uh, is what caused the, the PR department to to essentially see to see a monumental uh, pushback that this church has not seen probably since uh, maybe the 70s and maybe before that. Hmm. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is how this new policy affects agency. Something a, a gospel principle that we hold so dear in our in our church. Um, we talk about at age eight. That's the, the point at which an individual becomes accountable. You know, we, we refer to it as the age of accountability. How do you think this, how do you see this squaring with agency, Bill, Clay? Clay, your thoughts first, maybe? 
Well, I was just reading the Mormon newsroom and I don't want to, I don't want to backtrack, but here's one of the lines in there. Um, this prompted questions from many church members after the policy was, was released who, who are mostly reading media headlines portraying the instructions as a rejection of children refusal to baby names. Um, let's see. Um, the, this episode that they released demonstrates clearly the dangers of drawing conclusions based on incomplete news reports, tweets, and Facebook posts without necessary um, necessary context and accurate information. I don't know. No, no, I, th- I thought it was good because I think that it's, they're blaming the members. They're basically saying, look, man, you guys, you guys read that. You read the news headlines. You, you know, you got on social media and you guys just draw so many, so many false conclusions. <laughs> but the reality, as Chris pointed out, was we were actually dealing with what the actual handbook said. Right. We weren't, we weren't doing anything outside of that. Um, it just, it just feels like this is a, a way to kind of erase history and without saying you're sorry. Right. It created ambiguity because it was clear, but didn't address the ex, uh, ex, um, exceptions. And right. so, uh, in terms of the agency though, Clay, any thoughts you've got on that? Well, you know, Heavenly Father, the, we believe as members that that's one thing that Heavenly Father has always been a champion of. And I've, I've, Firmly believe that God is a champion of agency. It's the one thing that I hold dear in my life, and I've taught my kids and raised my kids to believe that agency is the one main thing that you've gotten, you've received from God, you know, from your heavenly parents. Besides a body, is this agency, and you know, it's um, it's a right to direct your life, and it's one of God's greatest gifts that, that He's given you. That right to direct your life the way you see fit. And the way you feel that God is directing your life. And what is that one thing that we've been giving, given along with agency to help us through that? That it, God has given us to show his love to us. It's the Holy Ghost. And he can guide us to use our agency righteously. So the idea that an eight-year-old is baptized or is not given that agency, that the uh, child of an LGBT uh, person is not allowed to exercise that agency at a time when they really want to. They want to, they want to join the club, man. They want to join this church. They believe in it. They love God. They believe in Christ and when they want to join it, but they're not allowed to exercise that agency is, is, I, I, it's incomprehensible. I don't know. I don't understand it. It was unnecessary to have this, this policy because it strikes that agency from that person, from that child. Right. I mean, who, who what's the one place you would say this is the, this is the entity that's going to protect your agency, and it should be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? It should be his authorized institution. It should be the church that bears his name should be, should be a advocate for protecting these kids' right to choose. And yet we've essentially said, even if you want to get baptized, even if your gay parents want you to get baptized, even if they're completely on board, sorry about your luck. No. It, it's, it's really putting those children outside the scope of Heavenly Father's plan because of agency is one of the key components of the plan of salvation. And you really remove those children outside of his plan by taking away their agency. Yeah, yeah. I don't and, know. And I don't hope. see how they fit in it at this point. No, and you hope, right? You hope that when they're 18, they come back. But I think the church knows darn well that the far and wide majority of them... I think it also affects the agency of the parents. Um you know, the new policy mandates a disciplinary council for the parents if they're involved in a same-sex relationship. But, Chris, it doesn't mandate 
a disciplinary counsel for a homosexual man who's living a promiscuous lifestyle. Doesn't that strike you guys as a odd thing that that one who has homosexual behavior may have a disciplinary counsel held, but those in a same-sex union must have a disciplinary counsel held? Sure, but... I would say that the handbook can't address every situation, and isn't that left up to local leaders to um, hold disciplinary councils as they see fit if they have a member that's that's being promiscuous? Let me push that back on you. Do you think that with the policy as it is now that we're going to have black and white rigid bishops and stake presidents doing doing manhunts for any gay couple within the reach of their bounds within uh, maybe it's an inactive couple who who you know the two guys went inactive after their missions and and they haven't been on the radar for for 15 20 years and now we're going to go hunt them down i sure hope not but i guess that's possible well would they would some rogue bishops feel justified with this policy to do that I don't know. I think so. Bill, when you were, when you were a bishop, how would you be reacting to this now if you were still serving in that role? So me today in that office, I would have, uh, I would have, I would have gone out of my way to make it clear to any individual that I thought this policy would affect that as long as it's under my watch, you ain't got to worry a darn bit about this affecting you. Wow. Wow. Even if that puts you in conflict with your state president? Right. At the end of the day, my conscience matters and, and I don't believe in blind obedience and, uh, and if we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. How do you see this policy affecting? You've, let me back up. You've, you've put some posts on your Facebook page recently that seems to speak to honesty and you have expressed that you feel that there is some, uh, Possibly some misrepresentation in regards to this policy. Is that, is that ground you still feel strong about holding? So, of course, this is probably an, a one hour discussion here alone, but let me try to be short. Uh, I, I can't point fingers and say, I know this person lied, but here's what I could say. The entity, the church put out a policy that was really hard and fast that was really mean-spirited, that marginalized, ostracized, and was going to harm a lot of people. There was an uproar, and the church then decided that it would try to address it first with Elder Christofferson just, you know, just basically trying to soften it just a touch and explain why they were doing it. And then that didn't work. And then it feels like five days later, we have this letter from the First Presidency, which goes out, which, which is weird, right? This First Presidency letter essentially puts in place a very different policy, but says that that's exactly what the original handbook was meant to be. It just doesn't feel right. And, and again, I'm not saying that you know so-and-so lied. What I am saying is that the institution, somebody, one of those 15 guys decided that this policy should be put out. And then somebody, whether it's all of them, seven of them, or one of them, somebody gave the okay to say, look, man, this blew up in our face. What's the best way to cover this up? Let's just pretend like it was meant to be this the whole time. And that comes off as, I don't want to say dishonest, but it comes off certainly as deceptive a little bit. It certainly feels like a sleight of hand. It feels like um, like they're trying to change the focus from what it really was. And And here's what I would say, going back to what I said at the beginning. If it's true that this clarification was intended the whole time, then I would have expected Elder Christofferson to mention it when he was interviewed, and he didn't. 
and that to me tells me that this is this is a this clarification was late to the game and it only came after the uproar the uh public uh, arena people being critical within media outlets members of the church resigning and everybody on social media being up in arms and i think the church just backtracked without saying they're sorry so would you allow the when institutions need to make clarifications or modifications, uh, do you think it could be unfair to clarify, to classify that as, as dishonest rather or, or disingenuous when, you know, we're just people trying to figure things out. Um, and sometimes we, you know, make administrative changes that need further clarification. Are you kind of not allowing that room for the church to do those things? Let Tell you what, let me grab my Gospel Principles book here, and uh, let me open it up. This is uh, chapter thirty-one. This is on honesty. You mean you're actually grabbing? This. You're actually grabbing a, a physical I'm book? Grabbing off it the off shelf? the shelf. I'm <laughs> opening it up, and we're here. Uh, chapter thirty-one, honesty. Uh, let me read this. Lying is intentionally deceiving others. Bearing false witness is one form of lying. Uh, it also says there are many other forms of lying. When we speak untruths. We are guilty of lying. We can also intentionally deceive others by gesture or a look, by silence, or by telling only part of the truth. Whenever we lead people in any way to believe something that is not true, we are not being honest. And what I'm saying is that I think it is, it is deceiving to say that this, this clarification, which really wasn't a clarification, it's a completely different writing of this policy that this was the intent, the uh, initial intent. It just seems like only because of all the upheaval did they go back to the drawing board and say, we got to make it look like something else, and this was their best attempt at hmm. Clay, do you have a follow-up? I just think the whole thing was a snafu from the beginning. So, I mean, if, uh, the original, I think what Bill's trying to say is the deception came in after, after the fact fact right they 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 quietly released a policy that wasn't intended to get into the hands of the entire world and it did and which is i mean we could talk conspiracy on that why how on earth did it or not how did it get leaked but who would actually believe that thirty thousand bishops would be loyal every single one would be loyal and not release it or leak it to somebody i don't i don't in the day and day of uh, the internet i would imagine that somebody at the Top would say this is going to get out. I don't know why they, they didn't realize. So, that. so Bill, I, I, you know, I was listening as you read, uh, read from the Gospel Principles book, and I've I've heard you, Clay, but I'm I'm going to offer a, a different perspective, and I'm going to allow the church latitude to misstep and to make administrative mistakes. Are you guys are you guys willing to follow me into that territory, or are you? expecting more from from human beings than maybe I do. I allow the church to make missteps, but what they did here was a bait and switch. They they released a policy that said adamantly that no children in essentially any situation where one of their parents is living in a homosexual relationship and that child spends any time at that person's home that that they are excluded from the ordinances. And, and then when all this uproar happened, they tried to, now they're trying to act like, no, that's not what it was meant to say. What we're trying to say is this over here. And what I'm saying is that if that's true, then I gotta believe Elder Christofferson would have mentioned that in the interview. And the fact that he didn't, and then five days later we get this letter that's drafted, uh, to me it's a bait and switch. 
And, and I get it. I mean, I'm not talking, I can prove it. I'm not saying that I'm absolutely certain of it. I'm just saying that's what the evidence would lead. I think a logical person to say. All right. Yeah, Chris, wanna... I, I would agree with, I could, I could go down that road. It was just an administrative mistake from start to finish over the last seven days. Everything's been an administrative mistake. And I'd like to believe that. And that's firmly how I believe that it was all a mistake, but I don't, I don't know that we here. should hold. I don't know that we should hold the brother into a higher, uh, to a higher standard than ourselves. Um, do you guys? Sure. We all lie. We're all dishonest. We all deceive at different <laughs> times in our lives. Well, I'm, right? Let's be honest. We all fall short. But what I'm saying though is that let's at least call a spade a spade that this, Clay, I mean, at least, at least, uh, maybe answer. Do you feel like the, and again, maybe this isn't how it happened, but that the evidence seems to indicate that this was a bait and switch? I do think the clarification when they started realizing that members are backing them. So they they made a mistake with the original policy. However, we want to decide that mistake was done of making the policy. Then they started realizing that the TBMs, the hardline members, are backing them and saying, we, we stand with the brethren no matter what they say. And they realized, well, you know, we made a mistake here, but we can't just come out and say we made the mistake on the policy, so we're going to change the policy. I don't I don't see any intention of deception i see them backpedaling i see them realizing they had put a put the church in a fixed position and they can't we cannot have a fixed position on that policy we can't and i i think they realized we cannot have that and they backed off it i don't see any in, intent of deception on the on the second part of the clarification so when they gave the clarification do you so the the Mormon newsroom paints it as if the misunderstanding is the members' fault and the media's fault, right? Right. So do you think when the modification slash clarification came out that that was their original tent, intent all along? Excellent question. <laughs> I wish I knew their intent. <laughs> I wish I did because I see the I see the contradiction you're trying to point to. And, and isn't it odd that Elder Christofferson giving a really good opportunity? To explain that clarification, for whatever reason, it is absent from his interview. Well, maybe they need a third clarification to clarify the, the second clarification to clarify the first. <laughs> I just it's it's a mess. What I disagree with is I just don't see the malice behind it. I think that we're we're an institution of imperfect people doing the best that we can, thinking that sometimes we're changing policy or or, or modifying our policies, and sometimes just you know, making, making mistakes that hurt people. And that's, and that's how I, Chris, I just want to ask you, you're talking, you're, you're, you're acknowledging, you, you would acknowledge that leaders make mistakes. You seem to indicate here that the brethren are, have made a mistake, correct? Absolutely. I think if you were to, I, I think they would, I think they'd agree. Okay. And let me ask you this, where in all this rhetoric have they acknowledged that they've made a mistake? Well, I don't think you're going to see them overtly admitting that they've made a mistake. They're, uh, but I don't see a problem with um, offering clarification, modifying an administrative policy to make it more easily understandable for the membership and maybe for themselves. Okay, let me push a little further. Um, who did they blame for this misunderstanding in the Mormon newsroom? Well, they gently... Uh, seem to blame the people that misunderstood the policy when it came out, which, which is all of us. But you're also saying the original policy was a mistake. Uh, 
I'm saying that people are human and that humans are, you know, leading our church and good, good people, but cer- certainly men and men make mistakes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it was a mistake. So if I got it right, it seems like you're acknowledging that the policy was a mistake, that, that general authorities and church leaders can make mistakes, that they really didn't acknowledge that they made a mistake, but instead told us that it was actually my fault and your fault and the media's fault, uh, for misunderstanding it. And I'm, and I'm simply saying that when we, when we follow that logic to its end, the, the point being is that that's not exactly upfront because part of being upfront is, is admitting when it's at least partly our fault for why this happened. And I haven't heard that at all from the church. I, I, I can't disagree with the logic. I, your logic is, is sound. Um, but we could come to different conclusions on, on, on what the intent was behind the policy. And I, I'll, I'll always fall to the side that people are human and we make mistakes and our church has a, a rich history of, of, Making mistakes and <laughs> a rich history of making. Sure, mistakes. I like uh, that because we have we've made a ton of them. Sure, um, but we but we rarely ever say we're sorry. And and again, because you know, I don't disagree because with of that. what's at stake here. Yeah, what's at stake here? I think that once in a while it just wouldn't. Hurt. And that's what's really hurt me. Hurt. It's what's hurt my heart is the pain and the and the suffering and the and the. It's like there's not a family in the church that isn't affected by this. The last couple of days, I've made it a point as I've ran into members of the church to ask them if they have, you know, a gay member of the of their family. Every single person that I've talked to has had some, even if it was a, an extended member of their family, but someone in their family that that uh, is uh, is gay or or and it it affects. It's got to affect the majority of the church. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think the days are. Because we're a worldwide church, because there's the internet and social media, because we are all now exposed to lots of other cultures, whether we see them on our television or in movies or whatever, we are exposed to so much in terms of people that are different than us that, that we've been forced as a people to begin to empathize and grasp at what it feels like to be in those shoes. And this, this case is no different. And and I think we ought to deal with the fact too that I think six percent of people born are gay. And the church says this isn't a choice. Whether they're born with it or whether it's, you know, some other call, it's not their choice. And so the fact remains that we more than likely have at least one person in our ward, and we definitely have multiple people in our stakes. And so we ought to be darn more sensitive to this than what we did. We ought to recognize that uh, teen suicide, um, that gay youth are four times more likely to commit suicide and that Utah is near the top in teen suicide. And many believe it's very, very much connected to the LGBT issue. And I just think as a church that represents the savior that man, we could do a whole lot better at making sure we protect these kids uh, because Christ himself seemed to place the emphasis above all other things that we protect the children. Well said, Bill. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs>